0: willis Ekbon syndrome, or as some call it, Willis-Eckbaum disease, otherwise known as restless leg syndrome. Welcome back to our podcast. This is part two, covering management of this condition in pregnancy. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practices because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Alright, in part 1, we covered the pathophysiology of RLS, and we discussed why it seems to be more prevalent in pregnancy, because it seems to be due, or have a large influence, by the iron or ferritin levels in the body, and of course in pregnancy, there's a physiological decrease in system iron due to that physiological anemia that occurs. Now, as far as treatment, remember that there are, of course, RLS medications that have been approved by the FDA. But all of the drugs used for idiopathic RLS, or for secondary RLS for that matter, belong to the old Category C designation, which means that they weren't technically indicated for pregnancy because of the potential for safety reasons. Of course, we used a lot of medications that were Category C in the past, like Phenergan or Compazine. But remember that that ABCX designation has now been removed by the FDA. Standard medications for treating RLS during pregnancy are just not established and most medications have been used according to the evidence from non-pregnant patients but they are off-label. So, medical experts currently recommend the use of non-pharmacological interventions for the treatment of this condition in pregnancy and even during lactation. So that's the clinical pearl. Right now, first line is non-pharmacological interventions. And we're going to walk through this algorithm to find out which medications can be used and which can be adjusted to try to address this condition. Now, let's get into some of these treatments of note only four pharmacological therapies have specific approval for RLS by the US FDA and all of them call for caution for use in pregnancy because we just don't have safety data so again yes there are FDA approved medications for RLS including one that contains gabapentin but all of those have not been studied for RLS in pregnancy non pharmacological interventions and iron supplementations are the primary treatment approach for this condition. Once again, during pregnancy, non-pharmacological interventions and iron supplementations are frontline. Nonetheless, some women will have refractory and severe symptoms despite non-pharmacological interventions and iron supplementation. Now, it's not so easy as just giving these patients iron, all right? I mean, there's a specific workup that must to be done because we don't want to give them iron overload. And then the way that we prescribe iron has also changed throughout the decades, and we'll talk about that in a minute. These poor women with refractory cases really are at wit's end, and they're very frustrated because they just can't get a good night's sleep. Refractory RLS during pregnancy and lactation is defined as an inadequate response to at least one non pharmacological intervention and iron supplementation. Now, having said that, we do need to clarify something here regarding these non pharmacological therapies, and we're going to go over a few of those in just a minute. It actually has been studied that there's a rather large placebo effect here in treating RLS, which begs the question is RLS really also a hidden kind of form of anxiety or of Of depression, well that's another topic and we can do that another time. But the placebo effect is common in RLS and it's also common in other central nervous system disorders, hitting about 20 to 40 percent. So keep that in mind. That's why rather than exposing women to medication that just doesn't have safety data in pregnancy and with a 20 to 40 percent placebo effect in some studies, that's why non-pharmacological therapies and iron supplementation are frontline. Remember that iron supplementation and avoidance of iron deficiency anemia in pregnancy isn't just about fixing or chasing down an iron number as a lab tag. But remember that iron deficiency anemia in pregnancy is also linked to some adverse pregnancy outcomes like low birth weight, preterm labor, and of course gestational hypertensive disorders or preeclampsia. We've established that. Let's get into some non-pharmacological therapies that can help with RLS. The first is physical exercise. Now, physical exercise in pregnancy is recommended for a variety of reasons, both because there's established physical benefits for the mother, but there may be some epigenetic benefits to the child as well. Again, we don't have time to get into all that, but just the idea of, oh, if you exercise during pregnancy, you're going to have less gestational diabetes and less hypertension, and you're going to gain less weight. While those are all true, there is now data that exercise in the mother actually has beneficial effects towards the offspring's DNA. Yep, it leads to less methylation and less genetic programming in the womb. Again, that's not the topic here, but the first pharmacological therapy that is recommended for RLS is physical exercise. Now, barring some weird contraindication, moderate-intensity physical exercise during pregnancy should be encouraged for all pregnant and postpartum women. Exercise has been shown to increase deep sleep, improve RLS, and benefit mental health, especially anxiety and depression. And the second non-pharmacological intervention for RLS has to do with avoidance of trigger factors. Assessing the factors that can aggravate RLS is part of the history-taking for patients affected. For example, known or suspected exacerbating factors include iron deficiency, insufficient sleep, ironically. Irregular sleep, being in pain, caffeine use, and nicotine. Now, here's the clinical pearl, guys. Some medications, including sedating antihistamines like Vistaril, serotonergic antidepressants, and dopamine blockers, can actually aggravate RLS. Now look, I remember it was about, oh, six or seven years ago when I was in Dallas and a faculty member said, oh, RLS, no problem. I can give all of those patients Vistaril as a non-sedating antihistamine and I'll just knock them out. Well, while they can get sleepy, it can actually, again, aggravate RLS. That's why it's important to know which medications can trigger the syndrome because we can actually make patients worse. So, sedating antihistamines, serotonergic antidepressants, and dopamine blockers are known pharmacological triggers that can aggravate RLS. All right. Those are some non-pharmacological interventions that we can advise patients to do. Now let's get into something that we can actively treat and follow, which is iron supplementation. But before I get into it, here's a take-home. It's not just about giving patients just iron. And you should actually do a full assessment of their iron ability or their iron capacity before you give medications. Because even though there is a link, and it looks like it is casual... Remember that not all women with RLS will be anemic. A good proportion will be, but not all of them. And if they are already iron rich, giving them extra iron can just make them sick. And potentially, although rare, it could give them iron overload. So iron supplementation, which we're going to get into, is again, first line. If they're iron deficient, you've got to do that workup first. So let's get into that now. This is a clinical pearl that iron supplementation in iron deficient women can help with RLS. In patients with symptoms of the condition, you have to assess iron status given the evidence for iron's role in the pathophysiology of this and other neurodysfunctional conditions. This includes measurement of hemoglobin, serum ferritin level, iron, and total iron binding capacity. And if you desire, you can do a percent iron saturation. Results are most accurate in a morning fasting blood sample. So remember, try to collect this in the morning and fasting. But it's also important to not have the patient take supplemental iron for one or two days before you check this level, because if not, the level can be artificially thrown off. Serum ferritin is the best single measure of iron stores. Remember that. However, serum ferritin is also an acute phase reactant, so false elevations can occur for up to 4 weeks after a febrile illness. So if there's any suspicion for chronic inflammation or an acute phase reactant pattern, then you can get C-reactive protein and you can document that because if C-reactive protein is up, then it could point to the fact that there is some inflammation going on and the ferritin level could be falsely elevated. Experts recommend assessing iron status in all pregnant women with RLS and beginning oral iron supplementation if the serum ferritin is less than 75. So keep that in mind. Of course, we're talking about micrograms per liter. All right, so 75 is a cutoff of where you really need extra supplemental iron. Remember that maternal serum ferritin levels drop to about 50% at mid-pregnancy in the absence of iron supplementation due to the expanding maternal red blood cell mass as well as growth of the fetus and placental structures. Oral iron supplementation, remember, should not occur more than every other day in frequency because ironically, the more oral iron that you take the less absorption you actually get. And the reason is, is when you take one dose of oral iron, then hepcidin levels acutely rise. Well, hepcidin levels is a blocker protein in the GI tract that actually blocks iron absorption. In other words, it actually shuts the gate. So once somebody takes an oral iron supplement, hepcidin levels rise for about 24 hours after that dose. That's why every other day dosages seems to give equal to, or slightly better, overall iron absorption than somebody who takes iron every day. So that's the clinical pearl. Taking iron every day increases hepcidin levels, which actually blocks iron absorption from the GI tract. Now, I remember writing for iron supplements, you know, two or three times a day during pregnancy, and we just saw these women just weren't getting better, and we always thought, wow, they're just non-compliant. No, they were taking it two or three times a day and they were blocking their own absorption. So remember, every other day dosage seems to be best for iron absorption inside and outside of pregnancy. Okay, what's the evidence that oral iron helps with this? Well, there actually is a lot of evidence. This approach is supported by multiple lines of evidence that implicate iron deficiency in the pathogenesis of RLS. Direct evidence that iron supplementation is beneficial in non-pregnant individuals and it seems to even benefit pregnancy-related RLS. Increasing iron stores to the mid-normal range, which is a ferritin greater than 75 micrograms per liter, appears to optimize brain iron function and decrease symptoms in RLS. Remember, the goal is a serum ferritin level greater than 75. Now, we've kind of hit on this a little bit, but there are other ways to optimize oral iron absorption. As we've already talked about, number one is taking a dose every other day. Also, taking it on an empty stomach. The use of vitamin C can also help increase absorption. And once you do these things, you can check your progress by checking serum ferritin levels anywhere from four to six weeks after initiation of treatment. Alright, podcast family, as we get to the end, you may be thinking, I'm not going to screw with all that oral iron stuff, that's why we got IV iron. Well, that's fine, but you have to remember that there's nothing wrong with oral iron supplementation if you do it correctly. But there is a role for intravenous iron as well. Constipation and bloating are common problems with oral iron during pregnancy due to the altered GI tract function. So as a result, IV iron may be needed during pregnancy. Now, in patients that have refractory symptoms in the second or third trimester or in the postpartum period and who persistently have ferritin levels less than 30, then IV iron is a good alternative to oral supplementation. For refractory and severe RLS, there is evidence that IV iron does remove symptoms or at least reduces them to a patient-tolerated level. Now, if all of that fails and you just can't get that ferritin up or she refuses to continue with iron treatment, then you can use either low-dose clonazepam or low-dose medications that actually have levodopa because those meds actually work on a different pathological channel and it can reduce symptoms of RLS. But remember, that's only in severe and refractory cases where non-pharmacological agents and iron supplementation have actually failed. Restless leg syndrome. Man, what a pain. Can you just imagine, right? You're tired, trying to go to bed. Your legs won't stop moving or you feel like you can't stop them. So it is really a kind of a pain for these patients and can have real both emotional and physical consequences. So we've covered RLS. Part one was pathophysiology. And this session, we covered management. As always, we're thankful for you. And we're glad that you're part of our podcast family. Follow us next time for another episode in Clinical Pearls.